Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And thanks for joining us. We have a lot to tell you today. We're going to talk about foreign affairs, politics, the media, criminal justice reform, and we also have some headlines for you. So let's start in Afghanistan. Eastern Afghanistan suffered through an earthquake yesterday, measuring 5.9 on the Richter scale just along its border with Pakistan. That is a rough and wild area called Khost province that has nothing more than the most basic and rudimentary medical facilities. The Afghan government said that they have confirmed at least 1,000 people dead and more than 1,500 injured, and those numbers keep going up. I was in a 7.2 earthquake in Afghanistan back in 2002, and uh, we were out in the field, so there was no danger of, of a building falling on me. But what really struck me at the time was how all the buildings in the village that we were in just turned to dust. There was this huge dust cloud just from every building collapsing. And um, my guess is that's what happened here. It's a terrible tragedy. Yeah, because, of course, when you see a number this high... And you think, okay, this is a relatively remote. Oh yeah, it's area remote, of Afghanistan. All right. You know, how many people can even be there? But I yeah. guess if every if every building yeah. collapses, right, this is the kind of death toll you get. It's also, you know, uh, bears noting that this is happening on top of this sort of slowly unfolding catastrophe that Afghanistan finds itself in of of uh, you know widespread famine and hunger that is, of course, being exacerbated by the U.S. and other Western governments deciding to uh, continue to freeze its assets and only, you know, find a sort of indirect pathway to allow a trickle of aid to continue to go into the country. And so this on top of that is a really a cruelty that's really hard to uh, contemplate and accept. It's, It's truly terrible. It really is. And there's no excuse for it. You asked me a question just before we started the show about whether I had heard any news of U.S. aid having been announced. And the answer is no. I haven't seen anything. We maybe we'll get a a statement today from the State Department saying, you know, the U.S. is providing assistance to the Afghan government. But that's exactly who we don't want to provide assistance to. You know what I mean? So are there aid groups active in cost? I don't know. I hope so. But I doubt it. It's a very dangerous place. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Michelle, the Washington Post has a fascinating article today about unionization efforts at Starbucks across the country. We heard last week, of course, that the Starbucks right here in Olney, Maryland, just outside of Washington, had voted to unionize. That's the first Starbucks in in America that's voted to unionize. It turns out that these unionization efforts at Starbucks around the country have been led by LGBTQ employees. And it was a trans employee here in Olney who got the whole thing started. One AFL-CIO official told the Washington Post that it's this new generation of workers, and especially of LGBTQ workers, who are leading the rejuvenation of the labor movement. And he went so far as to say that it is this generation that is the future of organized labor. Yeah, I, I saw yesterday also, this is just sort of in passing on social media, someone taking a picture of uh, some of the, not Chris Smalls, but other leaders of the... Um, Amazon uh, labor movement. And a lot of them are women. And I think that this is really heartening, right? Because I do think that, you know, we have really been fed this idea that the working class in America is white and male, right? And so it's okay 
to dismiss anyone who evokes the working class or the needs of the working class because they what they are doing is sort of indirectly trying to trying to do a racism. You know what I right. mean? Like, oh, we're just trying to cater to white male people. And I think right. the more we recognize who actually is the working class in this country, uh, the harder it will, exactly I think, right. to, uh, harder it will to be. It will be to divide people along some of these, um, you know, along some racial lines, uh, gender lines, you know, lines of, of sexuality, which is not to say that those divisions don't exist, but that, you know, we do have a very powerful commonality in our economic position, our class position in this country. And if we can learn to, you know, bridge, come together, right, along that strata, there's a lot more, there's a lot more possible. And if we allow ourselves to remain divided and and, uh, continue to, you know, operate upon this archaic uh, vision of who the working class actually is. So I think that's awesome. I think it's really heartening. I think it really uh, does. You know, I think it's a promising sign. I agree. And I think this is the very beginning of this story. This is something that that bears watching. Uh, The White House this morning announced that it would ask Congress to implement a three-month lifting of the gas tax as a way to at least temporarily bring down gas prices. It was funny. I'm going to interrupt myself here. It was funny on MSNBC this morning because— Poor John. Can't get a word in edgewise with John over here. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They were saying that, well, gas is already down Mm -hmm. after after last week. Well, yeah, a penny. Yeah, yeah. It's down a penny. Down to five. Right. Or like now is it 499? 499.6. Victory. Yeah. Anyway, the gas tax has been 18.4 cents a gallon since 1993. That might help a little, but the money will have to come from somewhere. The Republicans are already calling it a political gimmick. A stunt. I mean, even even in uh, NPR, there was skepticism that a gas oh, yeah. tax holiday would actually reach consumers. I agree. You know? And it's like George W. Bush's, you know, $500 refund on our taxes. It's just you're just trying to buy votes. Yeah. Yeah. In related news, we have Jerome Powell. Boy, everyone has quickly turned on Jerome Powell, it seems like. (laughs) He was, you know, nominated to his second term. He was sort of like, oh, Trump liked him, Biden liked him, everybody likes this guy. And then what do you know? Until they don't. Until they don't, right. So he is in front of a Senate banking committee today talking about, you know, his, they're always, it's sort of like all about his intention, you know? Do you you intend to bring down inflation? Yes. Okay, well. Guess we won't question the methods. No, I mean, he he was there talking about how they understand the hardship that high inflation is causing and they're trying to bring it down. Uh, He he did face some some questioning, uh, particularly from Elizabeth Warren and others saying, you know, is 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 this actually going to bring prices down? I think, you know, implying that, like, uh, there are other measures needed to bring prices down uh, than to continue to tinker around with interest rates. But yeah, Powell getting getting a grilling at least. I don't know that this will have any impact on his, uh, you know, his tenure there at the Fed. I saw today in the New York Times that uh, we've had four consecutive months now of slowing real estate sales, um, but we've had two. Excuse me, we've had two consecutive months of record real estate prices. So even though interest rates are going up, it hasn't done anything to curb inflation in the real estate market. Not mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also had, uh, you know, Biden and the administration have been chiding with with growing severity uh, oil companies, right? First, yes. it was like, hey, guys, do your duty. Hey, we right. know you're going to come through and do the right thing. And sure. then it was like, oh, stop being so greedy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I guess the CEO of Chevron 
got his feelings hurt and sent Joe Biden a letter yesterday saying, this is uh, how Yahoo described it. The president's own words have been self-defeating in terms of encouraging companies to boost their output. What does that mean? You're like, oh, you made us sad, so we're not going to do what you want us to do. We're going to keep, you know, sucking the blood of the Americans. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. We had every intention to for all the right reasons. Oh, my God. I'm going to give this one to Biden. Uh, when he was asked about uh, the, the comments by the CEO, he said, like, let's work together. The American people expect our country's leaders and industry to address the challenges they're facing in, in a serious and resolute manner. He said uh, he seems kind of sensitive. I didn't know they'd get their feelings hurt that quickly, which would be great if it went along with any action to compel this action by oil, you the know, oil industry that the administration supposedly yes. wants, wants so badly right. that it will keep asking for it and do nothing else and envision nothing else. Nixon did something. Kennedy did something. Truman did something. Why doesn't Biden do something? There's a precedent for it. You know, even if the Supreme Court comes back and says, oh, no, no, you really can't do that. We're, we're a capitalist system, et cetera. At least try to do something. Yeah. That's the, I mean, this is the same thing they said about the the huge um, oil lease project that the administration tried to ha- said they were legally compelled to go ahead with. Yes, you could have you could have fought harder is what a lot of uh, critics of that said. Right. Hey, um, I know you like the UK. I like the UK. <laughs> I spent uh, the happiest year of my life there. All the trains in the UK came to a halt this morning in the country's biggest train strike in 30 years. And in a really weird coincidence, the London subway system called the Tube is also closed because of a completely separate and unrelated strike. (laughs) Awesome. Love it. The fight is over. Pay, pensions, working conditions, job security. The country is paralyzed today. The strike is going to continue tomorrow and Saturday, but everything's going to be running on Friday. Yeah, that's how they do things in Europe. They strike one day at a time. Love it. In Greece last year, even the priests' union went on strike. I think I've mentioned they canceled church on Sunday and they canceled all the weddings and baptisms, but they did the funerals until they got what they wanted. Uh, the leader of the union, the RMT union leader, Mike Lynch, has become something of a, a social media celebrity and is a delight, <laughs> a delight to watch, especially uh, uh, he was, you know, being asked questions about inflation and won't to strike, just, you know, make things cost more. Oh, they were talking to him about, um, yeah, he'd said everybody deserves a pay increase. And he was like, oh, well, well, now won't that just make inflation harder, you know, uh, more difficult for people? Isn't that going to hurt the very people who you want uh, to have more money? And he comes back with a very great answer as to the salaries of all of the, you know, <laughs> the people who are opposing it. So, yeah, he's great. I uh, love to see him. He's a delight. That is excellent. We, we are going to talk at some point in the, in the next week or so about what's going on at the Washington Commanders. Ooh, yeah. This is a mess that just keeps getting worse and worse. Daniel Snyder, who has to be the most universally reviled sports team owner in America right Truly, now. Truly, I mean, I, I don't even think sports team owner. I just think maybe person. person. I think he's just a horrible human being. I mean, yeah, Vladimir Putin has more admirers than Dan Snyder does right now. Seriously. I mean, by, by like multiples. Yeah, Seriously. I honestly like. This guy, not only did he sexually harass a woman in the office. She alleges that he sexually assaulted her. And then when she reported the assault and the harassment and investigators were were uh, brought in to investigate the uh, the allegations, 
He hired investigators to invent to investigate the investigators. Yep. And um, to investigate the accusers, his accusers and their investigators to discredit them and the information that they were developing. Then he was called to testify before a congressional committee because this is a serious thing. And said, no, thank you. Yeah, no, my not lawyers, do my it. lawyers say I shouldn't. Yeah. Roger Goodell is there. Roger Goodell's yeah. there today testifying. Right. Yeah. Roger Goodell is testifying. So my guess is that we are very close to seeing him cross a line into criminal behavior. At the very least. Well, see, he's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of money. He's, he's a got billionaire. A lot of money. He was a billionaire, you know, at the age of 30. Yeah. So you're right. He has a lot of money that he could use to to defend himself and to delay these proceedings. But I I think that public opinion has passed him by. I'm really trying to get away with this stuff. I have spent the last all the time you've been talking. I've been trying to think of a a single American I can think of who people despise more than Dan Snyder. That's hard. Honestly, like unless it's like a living school shooter or something. Right. You know. The Buffalo shooter, probably more people probably hate, although, you know, he's he's probably a hero to some like awful, awful yeah, freaks. You know, I don't know that Dan Snyder even has an awful freak contingent that uh-uh. worships him. Uh-uh. Yeah, no, pretty bad. Um, I also I feel like we have to uh, talk about this twists and turns in Ubalde. Yeah. So yesterday we spoke Boy, about so the uh, head of Texas Department of Public Safety, Stephen McCraw. Right. Who had yesterday said this was a disaster. This was an abject failure and sort of directed blame at the Uvalde Police Department and the school police department. Yesterday, it was the mayor of Uvalde who I think had originally said he was not going to comment on the investigation in this uh, press briefing that he had uh, a city council meeting. Uh, but then said he was just too, basically too frustrated not to, and said uh, that McGraw himself had been lying, leaking, misleading, misstating information in order to distance his own troopers and rangers from the response. He said he leaves out, consistently leaves out the number of his own officers and his own rangers who were on the scene that day, and basically said this guy is trying to trying to leave all the blame at the foot of the Valde School District Police Chief. Um, and and their officers and ignoring the role that his own officers played in it. So now you just have everybody on everybody, or really it's uh, police officers trying to throw each other under the bus and a civilian yes. head of government. Yeah, it's uh, exactly just what we're getting seeing. really tired of it. Also, this mayor uh, was saying, look, I'm never going to run for office again. I'm not covering up for anybody. I just want to hold everyone accountable. I mean, who knows if what happens is tomorrow, it turns out he had officers at the scene. I don't think so. But for the meantime, he's sort of the the hero of the day in this story, calling out this guy who's trying to be the be the good cop. Yes. To the Uvalde School District police bad cops. And uh, it doesn't look like he's going to be able to get away with it. Well, I hope somebody pays. Because yeah. this is a screw up of epic proportions. It cost uh, 19 people their lives, 17 of them children. 21. Oh, that's right. 21. And yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Even worse. See, heads have to roll. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a full show coming up. We have Jeremy Kuzmarov. We have Ray Valencia, Paul Wright, Bill Honigman. Um, okay. We're live in D.C. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, talking about the convergence, the unfortunate convergence, really, uh, of media figures, you know, suppose a journalist, but is left journalist, current and former members of state intelligence bodies. That's right. And academia. And uh, what it means to have these things, you know, thrown into this, uh, you know, terrible cauldron together and what the effect is. Yes. We are going to talk a little bit about uh, trust in media in the United States and what it means to have this enormous gap between uh, journalists' perception of their performance and the public perception of their performance. And uh, we're going to get into why Twitter seems to be hiring so many FBI agents. Of all things. Of all things. Joining us for all of this is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me again. We've got a lot of big, complicated stories to to get into. So you'll have to forgive me as I try to, you know, make them into something comprehensible for a conversation. Uh, I want to start with two stories that we have from Mint Press and the Gray Zone about efforts of British journalists not only to amplify the talking points of their own government on national security and to try to smear journalists to challenge those talking points, but to bring that chill into academia and and try to ostracize academics and researchers who dare take independent positions or, God forbid, you know, research the quote unquote enemy. So Mint Press's piece focuses on the defamation trial of Guardian and Observer freelancer Carol Caldwallader. She was found not guilty of defaming businessman and major Brexit backer Aaron Banks, not because her accusations and insinuations had any basis in fact, but because a judge determined they didn't seriously damage his reputation enough. The judge also said that Codwallader had reason to believe her accusations that banks had been offered sweetheart deals by Russian banks, uh, though she'd seen no actual evidence of those deals. Uh, Rather, it seems her MO, at least some of the time, was to build a speculative story around a single, highly placed intelligence source. She had done this before with a story on a supposed meeting between Julian Assange and Nigel Farage, who, of course, uh, you know, was it was a big Brexit campaigner ahead of UKIP. That meeting seems never to have happened, something that sort of ironically uh, can be proven by the secret monitoring of Assange that was later exposed. And so this is this is a complicated story. But, you know, the crux of it is it seems to be dangerous to have journalists operating under the assumption that intelligence sources who are actively working for various governments, you know, whether it's the U.S. government or the U.K. government in this example, that these intelligence sources are doling out dollops of truth to them as a matter of course and not, you know, planting stories to further their national interests, you know. And so you can take one statement, you know, a statement by one source, decide, oh, this is obviously credible, even though the United States government has an obvious axe to grind against this publisher, and run with it. That that seems to be a, a dangerous foundation upon which to rest what is supposed to be credible journalism. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen that, you know, in the era of Russiagate, we saw that repeatedly over and over again. And, you know, the Steele dossier was a basis for a lot of articles and that, you know, proved to be, uh, you know, largely fabricated, I think, uh, uh, by, you know, British, a British intelligence agents. So, you know, obviously they have their own agenda. Uh, that agenda often has been to smear Russia, you know, demonize Russia. 
uh, to advance a new Cold War or you know, possibly hot war uh, and you know, service the military industrial complex. So, yeah, this is not journalism. This is, is propaganda and the public is being you know, propagandized and misled and it's it's very dangerous and it's it's a breach of ethics really of, of the journalists and the newspapers that are publishing them because credible journalism should have you know verified sources uh and, and stick to the facts uh, and we know the history i mean there's a, a long history of the politicization of intelligence and the attempt to manipulate the public into ill-begotten wars uh and i just wish more in the public were attuned to that a lot of people uh, buy into it and buy into like the anti-russia fervor that's led uh the world in, in dangerous places right now yeah this gray zone story uh that is sort of related it de- Details further efforts. We, we've talked about this on the show before. We've talked about, uh, you know, Gray Zone says it has gotten a, a cache of leaked emails from British journalist Paul Mason. Uh, the first big report was on his efforts to work with, you know, associates of the security state to silence fellow journalists. Uh, this new report is about him taking that project to the academy. And so this story... Uh, contains what are apparently leaked emails between Paul Mason, this British journalist who had a long career at the the BBC and other respectable organs, uh, between Mason and this woman named Emma Bryant, who is an academic and disinformation researcher. Uh, She and he discuss how to hunt down, quote, far left rogue academics and to, quote, quarantine their soft influencers and expose stigmatized the hard ideologists. Among these terrible security concerns that they want to ferret out are an academic researching Russian mass media at a university in Sweden who committed the crime of sharing a survey mailed to him from a Russian academic involved in this hunt for people who have some questions about their government's narrative is, of course, a figure from state intelligence. This is this fellow Andy Price, who's the founding director of the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program at the UK Foreign Office. And like most investigative stories by the gray zone. This one is very, very long, very thorough, very complicated. I am not going to attempt to offer a synopsis here, but what is at issue again is showing that you have here a journalist, an academic, and a member of the security services, you know, collaborating to, uh, you know, run a fine tooth comb through European academia and find anyone who's not, you know, uh, cheering on the response to the war in Ukraine. And so, you know, I I don't really think this is the role that journalists should be playing vis-a-vis power apparatus wherever you find it. You know, is, is this role to be secretly conspiring with them to expose dissidents? Uh, yeah, absolutely not. This is right out of the McCarthy era, and you know totalitarian states uh, function this way. And unfortunately, the U.S. and European countries are evolving in this direction. And it's just sad. You know, in the McCarthy era, eventually there was uh, you know mass movement that developed among young people who repudiated uh, the oppressive uh, political culture that had developed in the 1950s. 
and I can only hope and pray that a similar movement will develop among young people uh, today. Unfortunately, I don't see that. The conditioning yeah, is, is almost uh, even greater, I think, than it was in, in McCarthy era. They've infiltrated academia in the U.S. Uh, and Europe. Uh, you know, I've worked in academia. I know what it's like. There's a climate of intimidation. Uh, faculty don't raise certain questions, don't research certain topics uh, because they're intimidated. They know they're not going to get tenure. Uh, they'll be railroaded. They'll be, uh, you know, uh, demonized in academic journals. Their career won't advance. And you know, in the in the 50s, they were doing the same thing. They were purging anybody with a left wing viewpoint or any association with the Communist Party. And you know, the Russia field is particularly conservative, dogmatic, and oppressive. Uh, and that's what we see today. You know, anyone who's focused on U.S.-Russia relations has to toe the company line and promote the view of like a Michael McFall who has uh, – from his perch at Stanford who advances a binary narrative of you know, Russia evil, U.S. good, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it's it's outrageous. And, you know, this you've touched on this, but this idea of coming after academics who dare to continue to research and have communication with, you know, quote unquote, enemy colleagues. Uh, you know, or who maintain an agnostic position on issues that are filled with controversy and contention and untrustworthy players on both sides, you know, to it's again, it does seem to me to be run contrary to the spirit of inquiry. And I do think it's really unfortunate in the United States that, you know, this the conversation on academic freedom uh, really often tends to get monopolized by people who want to have the academic freedom to, you know, like take the phrenology calipers to people's heads and talk about, you know, <laughs> you know, it is really unfortunate because that's not, I, you know, I, I have a different opinion about that. I think that that's garbage. But like to have the freedom to merely continue, you know, if you're a Russia researcher, you'd think that we need experts in these parts of the world that we are in conflict with. Right. And so what is the purpose of the academy, if not to be able to to wrangle with these ideas with relative freedom? I mean, one of the guys who came in um, for, a, a, you know, a smear job here is someone who has merely said uh, that he thinks the, the reporting of Aramate on uh, the alleged chemical attack in Duma uh, is is worth looking at. Right. And he said, I don't have you know, I'm not saying that the the people who are questioning the official narrative and offering an alternative are correct. I'm just saying that it is clear that there is serious um, disagreement when it comes to this incident. Should, you know, like, is that, am I to be pilloried for that, for merely saying it's obvious this is controversial, it's obvious that there's been some irregularities in how this is reported and that it is worth further study, I, you know? I wonder what is the, you know, like, it's interesting to me that it's sort of journalism first, the academy second, right? Because that's sort of an area where you are supposed to be walled off a little bit and allowed to wrestle with ideas uh, with maybe a little bit more freedom than you have in the public domain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just pure bullying and, and you know, McCarthyism. I mean, there, there was a good book written by Alan Schrecker called No Ivory Tower. I mean, unfortunately, there is a history of that, and it was especially bad in the 50s. Uh, things opened up a bit in the 60s, but I think we've taken a slide backward, way backward. And yeah, a lot of these debates on academic freedom centered on issues of race and, you know, become the, a partisan politics. Uh, and, you know, there's this issue of critical race theory and the liberals you know, want the right to teach that, which I think they should have the right to teach it. But unfortunately, I think what we see is liberals, you know, focus on this because these 
conservative state legislatures are pushing back a bit against uh, more you know liberal interpretation or critical interpretation of American history. The core issue centers on that. But these issues we're discussing, the issue of U.S.-Russia relations, the world security environment, the U.S. imperialism with 800 military bases, these are completely off the table. Uh, and liberals are not defending the right of academics to address these issues and to present a critical scrutiny of U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and how they've provoked Russia uh, and, and, and caused this conflict in Ukraine. Nobody defending the right of any academic to say that or the academics who scrutinize or journalists, as you say, like Aaron Maté. And, and I've investigated that. I did an article on Theodore Postol, who's a top scientist at MIT, who found it was impossible for Assad, the Syrian government, government to have carried out the chemical attacks. It had to have come from rebel areas, and he used update uh, scientific techniques and computer modeling. Uh, uh, so there's strong evidence for that position, but you're not allowed to say that, and nobody will defend the right of any academic. Postal, in our article, we discussed how he had uh, he was actually the editor of, of a journal for 20 years, and they pulled his article without telling him, and they had a uh, unprofessional peer review process where they brought in somebody from Bellingcat, which is an intelligence service, to write a smear job, and then he was subjected to ridicule and attack, even called the Holocaust denier, when he's an outstanding scientist and he did a very uh, sophisticated and detailed scientific study. So that that's what we're seeing. And then, you know, I said McCarthyism when I discussed with him. He said Stalinism. And that's what we're, we're experiencing. And these people are bullies, and there needs to be a movement to uh, f f liberate higher education from these bullies uh, who tarnish the, the spirit of inquiry, which I believe deeply in, uh, of independent research, uh, wherever that research may lead and, and conclusion. And sometimes it casts a, a dark light on, on the power that be, and that's often good scholarship. And that's what students need to be exposed to so uh, you know we can develop a better society. So these people have betrayed their profession. They've corrupted higher education and, and they're bullies and they should be stood up to. I also, you know, to return to the question of journalism, it, it seems as though these actions are having consequences. Uh, we have a new survey out by the Pew Research Center that shows that journalists in the United States have a very different view of their job performance than the U.S. public does. Uh, the survey covered nearly 12,000 journalists and asked questions about how media workers perceive their performance and how they think the public perceives it. It also asked 10,000 adults, presumably not journalists, who are part of Pew's uh, standing uh, American Trends panel. And so this gap is really clear. 65% of journalists say news organizations do a very good or somewhat good job reporting the news accurately. Only 35% of the public agrees. 43% of U.S. adults say journalists do a bad job at it. 52% of journalists think they do a good job as serving as a watchdog to those in power. 29% of the U.S. public agrees with that. That is a pretty stark difference. 67% uh, of journalists think they're doing a good job reporting the most important stories of the day. 41% of the public agrees. And I wonder, you know, what kind of ramifications these gaps uh, have for our future? Well, they're bad. I mean, because uh, you know, journalism is key to democracy, and you know, uh, you know, somebody has to sh you know shine light on what leaders are doing and corruption behind the scenes, and you know, challenge uh, the direction of policy. And if they're not going to do it, the public is is left ill-informed, uh, and they're not able to fully understand what is going on. 
uh, and to develop solution, you know, to correct the problems. Uh, and then if they don't trust the journal, you know, newspapers or media, then you have these wild conspiracy theories, and then you have a demagogue like Trump who comes along and rails about fake news, and then tries to create his alternative universe. Right. And people tend to, some people believe him because they've lost trust in, say, the New York Times or CNN uh, or whatever uh, network. So this is a very bad situation we have here. Uh, and, you know, we're going into the nether world of alternative realities. Uh, and he's demagogue. And people really don't know where to go to find good information. And, uh, you know, a lot of people know that things are going bad. But they don't, you know, exactly know, you know, what the problem is, or they don't have really good grasp of world affairs. And I think a, a problem you're seeing is that we have serious problems in society, uh, but we're not seeing, you know, progressive social movements develop to challenge uh, the corrupt entities in power to develop a progressive vision going forward uh, or alternative. We're not seeing a repudiation of McCarthyism like occurred in the '60s. Um, because young people don't don't have access to that information. They don't know their history. They don't really have a good understanding of the conflict, say, in Ukraine, that could challenge the official narrative about it. Uh, uh, and so no movement develops uh, to challenge, uh, again, the powers that be. And, you know, uh, alternative media is failing to some extent as well because they're often uh, promoting some of the same narratives. Uh, and they also have only a limited reach. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a crisis of democracy, really. Huge crisis. Jeremy, when Donald Trump first started talking about the Democrats stealing the election from him in the weeks before the election, I remember chuckling to myself and thinking, oh, this poor guy, he's going to enrage a handful of his core followers. He's going to make a fool of himself. And he'll go down in history as a fool. I totally missed the notion that half the country would believe what he was saying. I did. I, I, I gave the American people more credit. And, um, and I think I was wrong. And so it seems to me that the damage done in 2020 and onward has become lasting damage in our political process. How do you see us getting out of this? How do you see us getting back to a place where Americans believe in the legitimacy of our elections, that they believe that the people who won actually won and the people who lost lost? How do we get back there? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. And, and on your point, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, point I was making to reiterate is that they're misdirect. You know, people are angry like what you saw at the Capitol riots. Right. They don't really have a, a constructive channel to vent their anger. You know, in the in the Gilded Age, like I've taught American history, uh, new parties develop. When when the two parties were seen as corrupt, new parties develop with solutions that could you know, right. for people, for regular working people, farmer like the Populist Party, the Socialist Party, and they had concrete platforms to challenge the power of Wall Street banks, to regulate the banks, to set up you know graduated income tax system, to fund education, to help farmers. That was the Populist party. So that's what we need. That can be constructive. And those parties uh, became integrated into the political structure and a lot of, you know, uh, the system was never perfect, but a lot of positive changes came about in the progressive New Deal eras. But we're not seeing that now. We're seeing people lash out like at the Capitol riot protest and just trash the Capitol you know, for no purpose. And then, yeah, with, with the Trump phenomenon, the people, you know, he's been able to kind 
like a cult leader brainwash some people. Uh, I guess people are just desperate for some kind of direction or leader, and they they cling to Trump and his message. Uh, and part of that, yeah, is a failure of education and journalism. So I don't think there's any magic solution, but I think uh, you know uh, reinvestment in, in quality education, quality journalism could make a, a positive difference over generation. Uh, is one one thing. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, the system has become so corrupt that people no longer believe anything, including if they announce an election result, people don't believe it because when the government has lied so many times, they don't believe anything yeah. they say. So I, I mean, I don't know how you get, get, get over that. It doesn't happen overnight. Getting back to trusting institutions has also got to involve having institutions that are trustworthy. You know, and can and, and stopping lying to ourselves about this, you know, the apoliticism of the Supreme Court or, you know what I mean? Like all of these sort of, oh, Diane Feinstein wants to stay in the Senate because she's really, you know, yearns to serve the people of California, et cetera, et cetera. All of these sort of little little dumb lies that we tell ourselves, because right now we have a situation where journalists know the public doesn't trust them. Right. They're pretty accurate when they say, uh, here's, you know, they can assess uh, what, what people think about the job that they're doing. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard not to see some real condescension in this gap between journalists going like, yeah, we're doing a really great job, but the public isn't isn't recognizing it, you know, and there's a yes. tendency to go, like, oh, idiot public. But they're not wrong to think that they are being lied to. And who, if you're working a job that's not reading the newspaper and talking on the radio or a job that involves political and historical research, who has time to actually figure out who is telling you the truth? That's So you just go with someone who's, you know, is charismatic and seems to be, you know, I mean, the thing about Donald Trump was he was telling the truth about about a lot of things that other people lie about. Uh And that's all you need. Right. You go, oh, okay, look, he's. He, he's saying something that's real that I know other people are lying about. I guess I'll just assume the rest of what he's saying is true. And, you know, you've set, you've set people up for a situation like that uh, by, by allowing journalism to become as sort of a weak and toothless as it has. That's all. That's all I have to yeah. say. <laughs> let me let me ask you, Jeremy. I had I had one more story that I wanted to get to. Well, I had two, but the last one is expendable. Um I wanted to ask your thoughts on this analysis by Mint Press News showing that Twitter has been recruiting dozens of people from the U.S. national security state to work in the fields of security, trust, safety, and content. And chief among these feeder organizations is the FBI. Uh, what do you think, you know, of having... Twitter is already... This is outrageous. Twitter is already criticized by some foreign governments as basically being, a, you know, a, a propaganda arm of the U.S. government. I, I think this report, you know, uh, gives some uh, validity to those criticisms. And, and so, yeah, I wonder how this kind of recruiting could shape how our media ecosystem works, especially considering that, you know, there are a lot of journalists on Twitter getting their information on Twitter, sort of uh, sharing their information on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, my two cents is that the, these intelligence agencies or FBI have become so powerful. Uh, they're so, you know, their budgets are so massive that they infiltrate all aspects of American society and life. And that's, you know, stifling democracy and, you know, including online, they have a huge effort to manipulate uh, online content, uh, including what you're saying about Twitter, uh, just like they're infiltrating a you know, political organization left and right. Uh, and we've done some 
exposés about that at Covert Action Magazine. So I think this is, you know, a crisis, uh, part of the crisis and, and links to what we were discussing before, that these intelligence agencies can manipulate everything and, and try and condition people. And then people, you know, know they're being fed propaganda and don't trust anything they read. And they're, they're in the netherworld. They have nowhere to go. <laughs> and they're lost and they gravitate to a Trump. So I think, yeah, you know, we have to have social movements that try and, you know, rein in, in you know, the, the, the budget of these organizations or, or establish new police. I mean, the FBI was set up uh, to, as a police organization to police organized crime and, uh, you know, protect national security, but it's far transcended that mission and instead is compromising democracy. Uh, so we need we need a change and, and we need social movements to challenge the power or, or to demand reallocation of resources or, or, or a new organization abolishing the FBI and establishing a new uh, national police force. And related to that is these huge corporations and their ties to the government and the, the corporations have become too powerful and influential so that journalists can't report what they want because uh, they work for these huge corporations, including military corporations. So they can offer a, a critical perspective on, on U.S. foreign policy because that challenges the military industrial complex. So we need some kind of social revolution in the country and people have to uh, band together on these issues. Unfortunately, we see is, you know, even the left-wing groups are focused on kind of side issues, which are real, but like police brutality, but they're not, uh, you know, not mobilizing against this, this tyranny that has developed. Yeah. And I think there's also, I think part of this process has to be a, a proper reckoning with the United States and our role in the world, because I think, you know, far less than a, a sort of line by line, story by story censorship campaign. It's just you're you're powerfully disincentivized to see the United States for what it is on the world stage. Uh, you know, there's so much encouragement to you know to, to believe what feels good, which is that America. You know, sure we have national interests, but mostly we're motivated by morality and we want to do good and help other countries do good. You know what? It's it's surprisingly hard. Uh, to shake that attitude off. And for a lot of people, it you know, for me in particular, it needed uh, spending a lot of time outside the country. I commend people who can get to this understanding without spending 10 years abroad and having it drilled out of your brain. And I think that that, you know, yeah, there's a role for education in that. There's a role for honest journalism in that. There's a role for honest politicians in that. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 we're long overdue for it. Uh, that was Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy, we always love to have you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about politics and health outcomes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking about a new study that says it shows how closely connected politics and health outcomes have grown over uh, roughly the past 20 years. We are going to get into this study, what it shows, uh, what it might be omitting that's pretty important 
and you know what it reveals about the overall state of American healthcare. Joining us is Dr. Bill Honigman. He's a retired emergency physician. He's California State Coordinator and Healthcare Issue Team Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. Dr. Honigman, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Michelle and John. Great to be with you again. Welcome back. So I thought this study was interesting, but there was also one aspect of it that I thought was a really big limitation. And I'm, I'm curious what you made of it. So this was a study um, done by investigators from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. It looked at mortality rates and federal election data for all counties in the U.S. from 2001 to 2019. And the team found what they called a mortality gap which is a widening difference between age-adjusted death rates in counties that had voted for a Democrat or a Republican in previous presidential and gubernatorial elections. So the team found that mortality rates over this period of time had decreased by 22% in Democrat voting counties, but by only 11% in Republican counties. And so, you know, they have taken that. They said we, we've... Um, you know, controlled for, for age, you know, we're looking at these different inequalities, and they think the study indicates that healthcare policies advocated by Democrats have contributed to longer longevity over time. Um, my question is that, you know, it's, this is interesting, uh, but the study mentions inequalities in mortality that exist between people of different sexes, of different races and ethnicities, uh, widening gaps between urban, urban and rural populations. I didn't see anything about income levels in these counties. And so I wonder what you make of this study and what you make of, of that, what seems to be missing information. <laughs> well, good on you for picking that up, the study. So oftentimes these, um, these really kind of grandiose, you know, wide angle macro looks at things um, don't get into that. Uh, this study did uh, point you know, a little bit at the, uh, the gap, that mortality gap that they're talking about um, as it relates to uh, what they refer to as race or some of us might refer to as cultural differences. But just the overall picture, once again, as you said, um, they have concluded something that, that a whole lot of us have seen for decades even, which is that Democrats focus on conditions of human need and human concern like health care. Mm -hmm. This study points out is that the risk of premature death is higher for people living in counties that vote Republican. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a pretty simple statement. And if you go only as far as COVID, for example, we don't have to go very far. Mm -hmm. Just look at COVID, okay? The highest number of COVID deaths in the country is, um, I would say, probably the top 25, at least maybe 50 congressional districts are all Republican. Mm -hmm. Very most number of COVID deaths is Florida 11, represented by Daniel Webster, Republican, um, with, I believe it's 4,363 deaths to date, according to the Harvard Tracker, as compared to Katie Porter, where I live, California 45, 1,679 COVID deaths. That's three times more likely to die from COVID if you happen to live, you know, regardless of your political persuasion, mm -hmm. you happen to live in Florida 11 of Daniel Webster versus California 45 of Katie Porter. Mm -hmm. 
That's pretty astounding. But just to focus for a second on that point that you bring up, this same study showed that if you happen to be black or Hispanic in America, that difference is not as great. And Hispanics have not experienced that much more uh, life expectancy results just by virtue of being in a democratic area. So Mm. as what tinkering incremental change and all of that that's been done with the Affordable Care Act, with expanding um, Medicaid in those states that have done it, Mm -hmm. has not improved the outcome for communities of color. That's the inherent inequity in our system that that is driving reform even now as we speak. It's been for 100 years now since FDR. Mm-hmm. We tried to eliminate those inequities, um, but, you know, the status quo um, Republicans and corporate Democrats are holding it up still. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. I th- I mean, I also think, you know, the study posits that these Democrat-controlled states would have adopted policies like the ACA's Medicaid expansion program and other social welfare policies, and that those probably contribute to health outcomes, which does make sense to me. Um, and I just wonder, you know, that makes sense to me. Of course, when I'm looking at this, I'm also thinking, uh, does this data perhaps reflect changes in the voting base of these parties, right? With a, a greater share of Democrats being made up by uh, college-educated higher earners uh, and white college-educated high earners, and with a, a lot of working-class voters starting to shift Republican. I don't want to overstate this, but yeah, a sort of shift in the base. So it's sort of, there's two possibly like uh, conflicting interpretations here. But to the extent that in Democrat-controlled states where you have, you know, whether whether you are voting for them or not, you're in a state where policies like this, Medicaid expansion and other so- social welfare policies uh, contribute to health outcomes. Do you think that that party is making this argument compellingly? Because that would seem to be a pretty compelling argument. Hey, look, we just help people live longer. You're absolutely right. And so the Republican Party is not, they're bold-faced, not attempting at all to make that argument that, mm-hmm. and uh, raise the, um, uh, the standing as regards to health and health outcomes uh, for uh, all people, but especially people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Democratic Party has uh, at least given voice to that idea. But as you can see, it is not um, adequately uh, bringing that, you know, it's making, making um, the sub, uh, changes substantial enough to, to alter those outcomes. So, therefore, that is a, a risk that leadership is taking mm-hmm. by not moving forward with things like Medicare for all that would eliminate those inequities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the for all part of Medicare for all. Right. To take Medicare, make it for everyone, okay, which does eliminate the inequity. Medicare needs to be improved and expanded, but it also needs to be for everyone. And that will eliminate the inequities that will um, engage the electorate that needs to be motivated to turn out to vote. Yeah. And I mean, I have to say, you know, even if you do make that argument, I think the the right wing counter argument is that, you know, we we care more about 
freedom, this idea that I think, you know, I think a very flawed and limited idea of freedom. I mean, this has been the argument about gun control. Sure. Yeah. More people will live if we have more restrictions on guns, but we value our freedom more. And it's possible they'd say this about, you know, different social welfare programs. Nope. We value our our freedom more than I want to, you know, contribute $5 from my paycheck to this, uh, you know, this universal program. But on the topic of you know, uh, where there is political will and where you can achieve uh, political efficacy, you know, the the political environment at the national level does not look good for, uh, you know, passing Medicare for all or uh, other, you know, sweeping changes to the social welfare system. Um, I wonder how how much success you think that progressives could have um, turning their attention towards state and local governments and trying to, you know, not replicate these large national ideas, but trying to as- achieve something at a local level. We've had guests on the show before who have said advocating for state level, like state level single payer healthcare systems is a mistake because of the funding structure of our governments that, you know, it, the state cannot make its own money. The st- states cannot reliably fund something like a state level Medicare for all program. So I wonder your thoughts on that. And if that's not, you know, if that's not a goer, uh, is it worth it to focus on other, uh, you know, other reforms you can make at the state level to our social welfare systems and our public health system? Well, um, terrific question. Um, I'm a believer that the pressure has to come from the bottom up, not the top down. So good luck. <laughs> in another word there, but good luck, good having luck. I don't know. <laughs> federal government to do that. Um, so um, I, I think, and truly believe, and I have, I guess, all my life, that all politics is local. Mm-hmm. You have to um, uh, convince people, change hearts and minds, if you will, at the local level, because that's where it impacts people the most, at the community level. So um, will Medicare for All improve uh, schools, um, you know, the workforce? Absolutely it will. Healthier, happier workforce, it does that already in all the other advanced countries in the world. Mm-hmm. So we need to put more pressure on um, state and local government to make these changes. What can they do? Uh, lots. Uh, they can do lots of things, and that's uh, being pushed forward in uh, states that are open to the idea, uh, as you know. Um, and so it's a mistake to be exclusive of the effort that's going on at the state and local level, even resolutions going all the way down to uh, school boards and, and water district boards, all of those things um, can advance this cause forward because people do better. We will save money and save lives in communities um, by approaching this at local. I ask everyone running for local government, what's your position on Medicare for all? Do you appreciate how much money that will save our school district, our water district, our city you know, city government, um, and uh, and I I make them answer that question uh, whenever possible. So um, so I, I think it's driven from the bottom up, and you don't start from the top down. Bill, we don't have a ton of time, but I wanted to ask you know more explicitly, what do you think explains the fact that 
you know, these these uh, gains, well, these decreased mortality uh, was far less significant for the black and Hispanic population, the non-white population in the in the United States than for white people in this study. Uh, like we talked about, mm -hmm. uh, inequities in uh, in the system, um, or you might say even say it's uh, systemic racism, um, largely, and uh, and that has to be, um, you know, eliminated, flushed mm -hmm. out, abolished, um, even uh, repaired. So reparations, mm -hmm. healthcare needed too, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and and that's part of the reform, um, and is not addressed nearly enough with mm -hmm. uh, incremental change that's gone on already. Um, that what you know when when. Um, Harry Truman <laughs> pushed LBJ to sign Medicare and Medicaid uh, into law in 1965. Um, neither of those presidents uh, believed that was going to be the end of the push for health care reform. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, yes, we had the Affordable Care Act since then. It has not done nearly enough. This study proves that once again. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's why we need to go on with Medicare for All. That was retired emergency room physician, Dr. Bill Honigman. Dr. Honigman, we always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about this study. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. John and I just realized we totally forgot to talk about that very emotional and compelling testimony that's right. uh, about January 6th. Don't worry. We're going to get to it we in the next hour. That and lots more coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Primary runoff elections were held yesterday in Alabama and Georgia, along with primaries in Virginia, Arkansas, and Washington, D.C., and there were a couple of surprises. First, in Georgia, get this, every candidate endorsed by Donald Trump lost. They really seem to not like Donald Trump in Georgia. Yeah. And I'm talking about Republicans. These were Republican primaries. But in Alabama, Trump-endorsed Senate candidate Katie Britt trounced previously Trump-endorsed candidate Mo Brooks. Trump had earlier withdrawn his endorsement of Brooks. In Virginia, Republicans chose two women to take on two female Democratic members of Congress in the D.C. suburbs. And in D.C. proper, Mayor Muriel Bowser, I don't know why I always want to say Bowser. <laughs> do the same thing. I don't know. Really? Mayor That's Muriel funny. Bowser. Muriel Bowser. She won renomination and de facto re-election yeah. uh, with 50% of the vote. That was against three other candidates. The congressional race in Texas that took place weeks ago between Representative Henry Cuellar and challenger Jessica Cisneros has finally been decided after all these weeks. Cuellar won the race by 289 votes. That is despite the fact that the FBI raided his home, they raided his office while investigating him for corruption, and the fact that he is literally the only Democrat it left in the House of Representatives who's pro-life. In lesser-known 
or lesser followed political news, we're going to tell you about some of the races for state secretary of state. Those are the officials in charge of state elections. You can imagine why they're so important now. They've been in the news a lot lately, thanks to Donald Trump. We are joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome back. Hello. Nice to be back. Ray, I'm very interested in what's happening in Georgia. On the one hand, just about everybody Donald Trump endorses loses in that state. Uh, That's with the notable exception of Herschel Walker, although Herschel Walker didn't need Donald Trump to, to win his nomination. Now, even in the runoffs, all the Trump candidates have lost again. That's not the case in other states around the country where Trump candidates 75% of the time now uh, win. Why is Georgia different? Well, it's interesting because is Georgia an outlier or is it going to be a leading indicator of what we may see in later primaries as we move into the later primary season, uh, Arizona, Michigan, those states, and the general election? So we watched the January 6th hearings yesterday. I'm sure we all watched them. And mm-hmm. the feature witnesses were from Georgia. Right. Um, the Secretary of State, uh, Raffensperger, uh-huh. and then kind of the guy that runs the administration of the whole election system, um, Gabriel Sterling. Right. And they gave some pretty emotional testimony yesterday. It was very powerful. Now, this may be new to the general public, you know, watching, but I remember being in Georgia right after the general election, and I was working on the runoff. And the local news was covering the press conferences by Raffensperger and Gabriel Sterling, and those pressers were very emotional. And they would refer to them as, oh, well, this is Misinformation Monday. Let me tell you about what's going, the pressure we're getting from the Trump campaign to overturn the electors. And so so they, were, they were transparent about it from the very beginning. Oh, yeah, because there was conversations, as we discovered in the hearing yesterday, uh, between the Trump administration and uh, elected officials in Georgia as, as early as uh, early no- uh, December. So this was going on throughout the runoff. And the night before the runoff for, the, um, for Warnock and Ozoff, Trump went to go campaign for Loeffler and Purdue. Right. And he was going on about the big lie. Right. And really, you know, riling up the uh, uh, people in Georgia. But I think a lot of the electorate in Georgia is aware of, just more aware of what Americans are learning, you know, yes. over the last few days. Yeah. And, you know, Trump, we shouldn't forget, too, that Trump told Georgia voters not to vote in those runoffs in 2020 because a lot of them stayed home. The fix was in, he said. The fix was in. And people said, well, why should I go vote if the Democrats are already going to steal the election? Well, the truth is that the Democrats didn't steal the election. This was all Donald Trump's plan, even if it cost Georgia Republicans two Senate seats and cost the Republican Party a Senate majority. Well, the Trump message about, you know, the elections are rigged is is having an effect on voter behavior. Even in Georgia, even though we're seeing some of these mixed results, Gabriel Sterling had tweeted a couple days ago after the runoff that uh, they were still processing um, total votes. Total votes cast were 167,000. 
Early vote numbers, you know, remain the same. Absentee ballots for the GOP were 7,500 approximately. Absentee ballots for the Democrats, 17,000. Wow. With 43,000 ballots outstanding. But this goes to show you the voting behavior is that Republicans are still under this belief that you can't trust an absent mailing a mail-in ballot yeah, right. or a machine. Right. You know, you got to go in person. So I think that's a kind of a, that's going to be an election downer for Republicans ultimately. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I guess it seems, seems like, you know, they're, they are their own worst enemy in this. I, I just don't understand. I, that I would disagree with. I think well, Donald yeah. Trump is their yeah, worst exactly. enemy. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's more Yeah. Yeah. I think accurate. he's, he's steered them wrong. <laughs> Yeah. And they're paying a price for it. They're paying a Trump price for sort it. of stepped in something in uh, in Alabama. He had endorsed Mo Brooks for the Senate seat being vacated by Richard Shelby. Shelby, of course, had been a Democrat for many years, very conservative Democrat. He had a falling out with Bill Clinton and he switched parties and was reelected with huge numbers every six years after that. There are very few people in America more pro-Trump than Mo Brooks. Uh, but then when Brooks began to slip in the polls, Trump just threw him away, withdrew the endorsement and endorsed instead Katie Britt, Shelby's top aide. Uh, Brooks made it to the runoff, but Britt clobbered him yesterday, 65 to 35. To me, Britt is clearly the superior candidate. She's smart. She's serious. She's very um, experienced on Capitol Hill. Uh, she doesn't say insane things on Newsmax and OAN or get up and tear off her, yeah. her microphone on Fox News and walk off the set when she doesn't like the questions. No Democrat has a prayer of winning that race in Alabama. She's going to be the senator. But did Trump's endorsement have anything at all to do with her win? Or do you think she would have won it on her own? Well, it's, it's interesting because... You know, the polls were slipping for the other candidate, and then Trump switches his endorsement. And I think he wants to raise his his capital for his endorsement. Yeah. It needs to be worth it. He more, keeps right? promoting the percentage of people that he's endorsed who have won. And so what he does is he endorses a lot of people who don't really have serious races. Exactly. Or they're incumbents. Like political right. reported that a lot of the yeah. winners have been incumbents. And sure. we all know in politics that, you know, the incumbency. Right. That's the biggest challenge. Right. That's right. Especially, when you're, you know, you're running a you're trying to com oust your uh, an incumbent in your own party. Yeah. Okay. Almost impossible. It's almost impossible. And then there's the that 11th hour effect that I think gets a little bit of juice to the situation. Maybe if he endorsed uh, the candidate previously a few weeks ago, right. there would have been maybe a half-life to that, and then that race would have been more competitive by Election Day. There might be a strategy of coming in 11th hour. Yep. I don't know. I'm totally, you know, speculating here because we're still trying to figure this out. Yeah, we really don't know. It seems to me like this could be going on. Right. You know? I, I, I can't bet, get past the notion that Tommy Tuberville, who can barely <laughs> find his way from his house yes. to Capitol Hill, is going to be the Senate, the, uh, sorry, the senior senator from Alabama. It's just crazy to me. Virginia has become a state to watch politically. It's kind of surprising to me, actually. Um, it has turned solidly blue over the last 15 years, but it made a turn to the right last year when it elected uh, Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, 
as governor, and it elected a Republican state assembly. The state Senate is Democratic. Now Republicans think they can pick up one or two House seats in Northern Virginia running conservative or moderately conservative women against moderate Democratic women in a suburban district and an exurban district. Uh, The Democrats have to hold these seats to try to dodge a route, what looks like it could be a route anyway, in the House of Representatives in November. What do you think? Are these races competitive? So I'm looking at the lieutenant governor. I think the the Republicans have been very savvy in Virginia, right? When Yonkum won, and yeah. what's the lieutenant governor's name? Winsome Earl Sears. That's okay? right. She's an African-American. She, she, she did her advertisements holding um, an AR-15. There you go. That's really, you know, that's yeah. tough, right? And a Marine, you're touching on that. And yep. I think the Republicans are, they're playing that game. They're like, hey, you know, the, the Democrats are all about the diversity and running African-Americans. Yeah. We can Hispanics. do that too. We can run women. Yes. We're going to focus on the Hispanic vote. Right. You know, and, and I think it's, it's effective. I think so too. And I think, I think in this environment right now, races. John, that we're in, yeah, uh, they could very much pick up those seats. I think so too. And the, the and the and the blue wave that happened after Trump was elected in Virginia, uh-huh. I think that was a reaction to Trump. And then now mm-hmm. the pendulum swinging a bit. Yeah. Can I also? I just have a I have a question here because there's a tendency to. Uh, when it comes to minority candidates that are running for as Republicans to see them as like plucked from right plucked from on high. Yes. Right. Is it, you know, we, we can run a black woman. We can run this other. And I wonder if the, that maybe obscures what is actually happening, which is a shift uh, away. Like, I don't know question. that it's necessarily accurate to think, yeah, obviously, you know, all parties want to put different people up front for their own purposes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these people who are running are not running out of their own conviction, right? At least some of the time. And so like, yeah, we we definitely saw that in that lieutenant governor's Do you miss the sort of organic nature of the shift in the organic appeal of some of these candidates if we we tend to think like, oh, yeah, well, of course that, you know what I mean? Like, of course, the Republicans want to add more. Uh, token diversity to their uh, their slate. It may not be token. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's what I think. I think we have to reckon with with the fact that this might not be token. Yes, agreed. Yeah, there's just not a lot. When you look at like the number of African-Americans that are Republican, I mean, I would say that more probably non-party affiliates are Democratic or then Republican, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it's not necessarily token, but... I think it, it's it's a good strategy because you're taking a low population uh, group and then you're trying to expand that tent and bring more people under sure. that umbrella. But and, uh, the Democrats, though, have consistently made the mistake of underestimating minorities who exactly. identify politically as Republicans. And also thinking that they are owed the vote That's right. of minorities, which is like yes. something that I hear from real people oh, who have yes. real resentment, you know, at being treated that way. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And for people who either don't want to throw their vote away, quote yes. unquote, on a third party, who are not aware of, you know, other you know, whose sort of political imagination is constrained as so many Americans is to this two party system. You either 
shift to to not voting or you just shift to the other party. Yes. And I think there's a real danger of thinking that that's not going to happen. Yes. I oh, think you're exactly happen, right. We had Bernie Sanders voters vote for Trump, right? People flipping over to another party or to another group not of that many. Yeah. 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 Not, not, well, I'm I'm more concerned, not concerned. I'm more interested in the Democratic Party's reaction to the increasing numbers of Hispanics who identify themselves as Republicans or as conservatives. I think the Democrats are missing something here. And I think especially that it is Hispanic conservatism on social issues. It is. I think mm-hmm. the Democrats just assume as Michelle said, that that minorities should be Democrats. Yeah, and, and it's not the case. And they're no. ignoring the bigger picture. Right, and many Hispanics I know are socially conservative. They're Catholics. Exactly, they're, they're Catholics. Pro, they're exactly. life you know. Exactly. And when you look at um, a lot of African Americans, I mean, they're more Protestant. I mean, it's just, it's different. I mean, you can't lump everybody under no. one no, you can't. Yeah, but th- but you can't on both sides, yeah. and that's why the Democrats need to be careful. So Muriel Bowser in D.C. You live in D.C., Ray, yes. and and You're Michelle just- lives in D.C. I'm a Virginian, but this race was a pretty important race. And then and leading up to election day, there was a lot in not just the Washington Post, but in some of the local uh, news outlets, uh, D.C.ist city paper, saying that Muriel Bowser was maybe in trouble. She's not. She's not as popular as some previous mayors have been. Uh, there were three people running against her, and uh, and she kicked butt. She got 50%. Her nearest rival got 34.9%. Uh, it was a decisive win. So why did so many pundits think that she had a chance of losing this race? Why do you think she won it so handily? I think a lot of people that I talk to that have lived in the district a long time, they're not happy with Bowser because of, you know, land use policy and uh-huh. things like that. You know, she's cozy with land developers. Right. And, she is. And, you know, they did the big um, Black Lives Matter plaza. But a right. lot of people in Ward 7 and Ward 8 were saying, yeah, but you're railing against policies and things that would really help us. You know, you have a plaza and it looks nice, but we want you to do something that's really going to help us, you know. But... Her national press during COVID yeah. was so positive. Uh, very, very good. You know, and so I think she had a lot of money. She had the power of the incumbency. She's popular on the national level. I mean, there was even like chatter about her being a possible V-pick that was, you know, going on during COVID and all this stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Mariel Bowser seems to be here to stay for a while. Yep. And I think it has more to do with incumbency and the amount of money she probably had for her yeah, that's. I yeah. think you're and probably it's right. Right, so it's so blue here in the district. Oh, well, this was the ra- this was like the a, race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton got what ninety four percent. I think it was yeah. in Washington. So, so yeah, this this is the race. Um, the race. South Dakota. Uh, yesterday, the South Dakota Senate convicted a re- boy. Yeah, Republican <laughs> State Attorney General Jason Ravensburg, and they removed him from office. He's the first. Uh, elected official in the history of South Dakota to be impeached and convicted and removed from office. He uh, had been impeached by the state house a couple of weeks ago. Ravensburg had gone to a fundraiser in 2020 and on his way home while he's texting and steering with his knees, 
Oh, is that what they found? Uh huh. Um, he hit a man walking on the side of the road and killed him. He claims that he thought he had hit a deer. And so he didn't call the police. He went home and he went to sleep. And the next day, he told friends, Hey, I think I hit a deer over on Route 55. They drove over there and they found the man's body next to the side of the road. Then he called the police. So was he drinking at the fundraiser? Who knows? Probably can't prove anything. And he had been home for so long that even if he had been drinking, there was no more alcohol left in his body. So again, favorite detail from that crash is that apparently the man's the man he's hit. He hit his glasses were found inside uh, Ravensburg's car. Yeah. Inside the car. He come through the windshield. Uh huh. Yeah. But he just went home, went to sleep. So he's, he refused steadfastly, adamantly refused to resign saying, even if he did hit and kill this guy, that did not stop him from carrying out his duties as attorney general. So governor Christy Nome has been like screaming since this happened two years ago, that he had to resign. She wants him out. She wants him out, and he refused. So um, he ended up being prosecuted on two misdemeanor counts of distracted driving and leaving the scene of an accident. He pled guilty, and he was fined $500. That was it. Um, Finally, Christy Nome asked the state legislature to take up the issue. Uh, It's solidly Republican up there, like two thirds Republican in both the house and the Senate. And he was impeached by the house a few weeks ago and then convicted yesterday uh, in the Senate. This is a big deal because it's not really about Ravensburg. It's about Christy Nome. And it's not really even about like the state she's in as governor, right? Like her, no. her like her being competitive as governor. It, no, no, I no. She's untouchable do, as governor. Yeah. I think it has to do with her future and her prospects on the national. This was a distraction. This was a thorn in her side. Ravensburg is a bad guy. Now he's no longer the attorney general and she can focus on, on sucking up to whoever the Republican nominee is going to be for president. So she can be vice president. Yeah. I think that could, I, I totally agree. I under that impression also, especially if she's going to run, try to run for vice president. Yeah, because there's probably going to be a woman vice president or somebody. I mean, we don't know what's going to be happening with the Democratic ticket. No idea. Uh, We're assuming Kamala Harris would be somewhere in there. She's the vice president now. I hope not. Unless the administration completely changes, you know, unless there's a major change. Yeah. In some kind of primary. I don't know. I mean, that's. That's a mess. That's a hot mess. It's uh, a mess, But she's all right. definitely running or preparing to run for national office. It seems to me with that behavior. Without a doubt. The Texas Democratic primary between Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros, as I mentioned in the intro, has finally been settled. Cuellar gets the nomination, but Cisneros, I think, has a very bright future. San Antonio, which is where this district is, San Antonio is changing. It is changing. And... I think that that Cuellar does not have a bright future. Uh, Listen, when the FBI raids your house and your office, they do it for a reason. And I don't know what charges are going to end up coming out of this, but you can bet your next paycheck something. There's some charge that's going to come out of this. 
And he's going to have to, you know, resign to spend more time with his family, resign to defend his dignity and his honor in court, whatever. I think Jessica Cisneros is going to be the next congresswoman. What do you think? I I think so, too. I think if there's some hang up that he has legally, if something happens between now and November. Oh, yeah. It depends, though, on when if and when he's charged. Right. Yeah. It really does. Because that's going to be news. Well, It'll be in the news all the much, time. Much to my surprise, uh, Nancy Pelosi went down there and campaigned for him. Steny Hoyer went down and campaigned for him. Uh, Jim Clyburn, the, the House majority. Oh, we've talked about this. And or Michelle, whatever he I think is. the term kneecapping your own party is a really good term, term. Because here you have folks that are going to work against your agenda on the national level. Yeah. Which he's doing. Right? It's like cinema and mansion in the Senate. Right. Right. You got Biden trying to pass, you know, uh, build back better with social welfare programs attached to it. They want to, you know, piecemeal it off, which means it's never going to have a chance. Never going to have a chance. I think so, too. And, you know, it's just more of that. And it's a problem. It's an ongoing aggravation for me and many, you know, progressives that look at this like, stay out of. The party leaders need to stay out of the primaries and let voters choose who they want to run in the general election. Yeah. They're trying to decide who's electable. And you know what? They get it wrong, right? They wanted Hillary Clinton wanted Trump because she thought he would be more. He's the most beatable. He's the most beatable. But guess what happened? Guess what happened? Trump gets elected and now the Supreme Court is messed up for like a generation now. (laughs) You know, that's an outrage. And I think voters should be outraged. But that's that's really the thing is like the Democratic leadership needs to stay out of the primary. Cisneros could have won. They put they they put their finger on the scale. She almost won. It was within the margin of error. It's just oh boy, so was disconcerting. It? Um, you know, I always get a chuckle out of uh, people who say that, well, Ronald Reagan, you know, the, the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not speak ill of another Republican, which means you never, ever run against another Republican in a primary, says the guy who ran against an incumbent president (laughs) and so damaged him that the weakest possible person that the Democrats could have nominated, Jimmy Carter, ended up winning. But anyway, that's a different issue. You've been following these races for secretary of state. Nobody ever pays attention to these races. And all of a sudden, they've become critically important. So tell us about that. Well, they're very important because the January 6th committee put so much focus on that, right? This idea of the big lie. And we've been talking about this, particularly in states uh, such as Pennsylvania, where the governor has the authority to appoint the secretary of state. So the secretary of state is not always an elected position, okay? But there are some competitive races right now we've got in Michigan. Yeah. Okay. Where, where, where Satan apparently is on the ballot. Yeah, yeah. So Donald Trump, after this, all this testimony rolls out, he's going to, he's doubling down. He's like, you know, the election was rigged and we want to prepare for the next time. So this doesn't happen again. Well, may I jump in? Sure, please. May I steal just a little bit Absolutely. of Absolutely, please. This race in Michigan, there's a, a woman by the name of Christine Caramo who's running for Secretary of State. She's the Republican uh, who's running. And um, she says that the Democratic Party has been taken over by Satan, that it is uh, uh, sponsoring a satanic agenda, that the current Secretary of State is an evil woman, and premarital sex leads to pedophilia. 
Did you and know that? No. Yes. That thing is like. She listened to this wonderful wow, quote. Wow, I am in trouble. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I've got what, 20 years on you at least. So she says, listen to this wonderful quote. When we normalize people fornicating and we normalize people living together with their boyfriend and girlfriends, we get to a point where we have people who want to normalize pedophilia. I mean, this is what they said about gay marriage, right? They were like, well, if we let a man marry another man, what's to stop him from marrying a dog? Because uh-huh. uh, it's not a human. Yeah. You know, right. it's like not that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is a, this is an yeah. old tactic. Well, now this woman wants to run Michigan's elections. Yeah. yeah. She wants to run for secretary of state, you know? And, and the thing is, is like Jocelyn Benson, who's the current secretary of state, her testimony yesterday was just so compelling. She was uh-huh. talking about how she's being harassed and getting phone calls and and she's scared. I mean, it's it's a risky job now to be secretary. It actually state. is as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. It is. We have in Nevada, okay. Yeah, Nevada's important in this context. Nevada, we were talking about Nevada primaries. Last week, yes, okay. Uh, another area where the Hispanic vote, the um, Republicans are really gunning. But uh, Jim Manchin, who's the current, or he's running for Secretary of State, right? Um, he says that the shape of our country, the shape that our country is in right now, is because of election fraud. Right. The people of Nevada have not legitimately elected anybody since 2006. Right. They have been installed by the deep state cabal. Right, right. It's, was it's, a, a, it's a deep state cabal of CIA and DOD and FBI that has illegally installed <laughs> all of Nevada's leaders. Including him, I guess. Inc- apparently including him. Some people do have an inflated sense of their own importance. <laughs> oh boy, do they. What a clown. And so he's also leading the charge, okay, Uh of an, a pact called the American First Secretary of State Coalition. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And so what they're doing is they're raising money so that way uh, they could, you know, pressure electors <laughs> at the next election, right? And they talk about doing this. They talk about having a preemptive plan. They're going to focus uh, very strongly on poll watching, I guess, to... What, intimidate voters? I was just going to say that's code for voter intimidation. Voter intimidation, right? Right. Uh, No absentee ballots. I guess they're going to be doing stakeouts and drop boxes and all this stuff, right? But they're raising money. And what they're telling people is like, hey, even if you don't live in Nevada or Michigan or one of these states that are important, please send money over here, you know? So, yeah, that's kind of wild. And then in New Mexico, there's a woman by the name of Audrey Trujillo who uh, who refers to the 2020 election as a coup and says that she decided to run for secretary of state because, quote, when I saw the inconsistencies in the last election, you know, I feel that a lot of people, whether we can prove it or not, that this election was stolen. So whether it doesn't she matter can prove, if you can it, or prove not, it or not, yeah. proof doesn't matter. Evidence doesn't matter. Apparently, it really didn't matter to the Trump administration because Giuliani and his lawyers kept telling the various secretaries of state who would ask them, well, give us the evidence of the dead people that voted. Right. Or and all this. And you know, and the funny thing is they, they've only been able so far to prove seven cases of voter fraud. And all seven of them are people who voted twice for Donald Trump. Right. Raffensperger. <laughs> 
Raffensperger said yesterday in testimony that, you know, Donald Trump claimed, oh, there's thousands, thousands. And they literally hand counted all the votes, yep. like five million votes. Yep. And found that there were, I think you said it, yeah. seven, like a, like a handful, you yep. know? And so, yeah, so the big lie is going to continue on. And, yeah, you pretty much read my quotes about Audrey. Yeah, I'm not going to, it doesn't matter, proof doesn't matter, evidence doesn't matter. I'll, I'll add, too, that the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Pennsylvania is one of these election deniers who mm-hmm. participated in the January 6th Well, so is uh, Doug thing. Mastriano. Yeah, and so is Doug Mastriano, the nominee for governor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is going to be. That's why that race, I think, is going to be so important. Yeah. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to A really, stark difference. You know, one last thought. Uh, yesterday, I saw an interview with uh, Dr. Oz on Fox News, and Bill Hemmer was, inter- was uh, interviewing him. And uh, Dr. Oz just kind of threw out there that he's, he's leading in the polls. And Hemmer said, no, you're not. He said, Fox News poll has you losing by nine percentage points. Wow. And if Fox News says you're losing by nine percentage And And uh, Dr. Oz said, well, I don't really pay attention to polls. Uh, it's too early. And Bill Hemmer says, well, wait a minute. You're the one that brought up the poll. You're the one that said you were, you were winning and you're not winning. And not only are you not winning, but John Fetterman had a stroke and he's not even campaigning. And you still can't win. And then Dr. Oz, with this plastic smile on his face, just said, why don't we move on to another issue? So we're going to leave it right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) We were happy to be joined by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we will be back with Paul Wright. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Yet another prisoner died this week at New York's notorious Rikers Island. That's the seventh prisoner to die so far this year. The causes have been everything that you might assume. Violence, medical neglect, drug overdoses. And while people are dying, New York's mayor, Eric Adams, is off partying with musicians and actors and saying that if you don't want to be in Rikers, then don't commit a crime to get there. He's too biased to realize that that is not the issue at all. We're going to talk about what the issue is. And the state of Maine became only the fourth state in America to ban civil asset forfeiture. That's when the cops pull you over, they take your money, and then they never charge you with a crime, and you can't get your money back. We're going to talk about that with Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. As always, we're happy to have you. Thanks for having me on the show, John. So glad to have you. We've spoken many times, Paul, about Rikers Island and the conditions there. The New York Times said yesterday that yet another prisoner, the seventh this year, has died in custody. But I think the real story here, at least to me, um, and at least the, the new story, is that Mayor Eric Adams doesn't really seem to care one whit what is happening at Rikers. Uh, the prison was supposed to be closed. It was supposed to be torn down. And now literally nothing is happening there. Can you give us an update? 
Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, the problems at Rikers go back literally uh, decades, if, if not more than a century. And right. it's just been kind of an island of, you know, an, an island of misery and, and torture and brutality and corruption almost since its inception. And I'd say probably at least in the last half century, there's been dozens of lawsuits uh, around the conditions. There's been uh, talk about improving it, and yet nothing seems to happen. The, about the only good thing that's happened is the population has been dramatically reduced from a high of around 20,000 prisoners there around 20 years ago. It's down to around between five and 6,000 now. So I'd say that that's one of the good, one of the few yeah. things that's happened. Still huge, though. Yeah, that's still huge. And and the number of, uh, as you know, the number of deaths, on the one hand, the fact that you have so many deaths for such a relatively small population is, is kind of a testament to how bad the conditions are there. And the fact that regardless of what they seem to do or not do, um, the conditions stay bad, whether there's lawsuits, whether there's talk by politicians, the conditions remain horrible. Um, a, a couple of months ago, the New York Post um, uh, published a, a bunch of just terrible pictures showing literally prisoners so crowded in there, they're sleeping on the floor. Yeah. Enough. Even though it's at its lowest population it's been at in decades, because they've closed uh, units or overcrowding the remaining units that they do have open. And Bill de Blasio, I mean, he talked about closing down Rikers, and he, it was just that talk. They haven't actually advanced on any plan to, you know, replace Rikers or come up with um, an actual plan that they can start taking, um, you know, shovel to to dirt to start to start on new facilities and and things like that. So it seems like almost it's almost like the uh, shell game where the public is being continually deceived with this kind of you know full card monty here for the politicians and the Rikers Island uh, commissioners and bureaucrats are continually saying, yeah, 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 we're going to close it, we're going to fix it, and then nothing actually happens. And that it's been going on for decades, I think, is um, at some point people have to say, New Yorkers in particular, obviously, need to say, hey, we've had enough, you need to actually do something here. I was in New York last weekend visiting friends. All of them consider themselves to be progressives, and most of them are Democrats, not all of them. But when the issue of crime came up, they all just completely became hawks. One of them went so far as to say that the homeless and mentally ill should all be locked up. His exact words were, incarcerate them all. And then he said, you're going to put that on the radio, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I might, because it's kind of shocking to me. And uh, he said that, that at least in New York, this is a backlash over a decision similar to the decisions we've seen in in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, uh, even here in Arlington, Virginia, um, to do away with cash bail for many crimes. So rather than emptying Rikers, public opinion, at least in New York, wants to fill Rikers. Where do we go from here? You know, we've got politicians now, I saw in today's New York Post, accusing the current district attorney of being literally the worst district attorney in the history of the state of New York because crime is up, there's no cash bail, there aren't enough people in Rikers. So wh where do we go from here? I think in a lot of respects, this is kind of like the problem with, you know, having a police state for the last 40 or 50 years where every social problem and every yeah. social ill is viewed as having a police state problem. I think it's the proverb that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. And But I also think what happens with that is, 
if you tell the citizenry that the only tool in the toolbox is a hammer and it's a criminal justice hammer, then that's all people expect. Because I, th I think that one of the things that, um, and I think we've seen this for, you know, literally I think for at least the last 40 years is that almost every social ill or social problem that has, whether it's homelessness, the solution is, hey, lock them up. Uh, mental yeah. illness, lock them up. Um, poor, poor people without, uh, unable to earn a job, earn a living, either lock them up or give them a job as jail guards. Right. And that's, and that's been like our solution to everything. And, and New York is funny because there's almost the height of irony when uh, Mario Cuomo, at the time he was the governor of New York, um, he took uh, billions of dollars of HUD funding, housing and urban development money, and used it to build prison cells. And with wow. case, he said, we're building low-income housing. Oh, my God. It, happens to be prison, it just happens to be prison cells in upstate New York. And, and I think that's one of the things is when you start looking at um, fiscal priorities and where they spend money on, it's like, okay, they're not spending money. They're, they're willing to spend tens of billions of dollars on building prisons and staffing them rather than tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars building homeless shelters or affordable housing for people. And, and I think that one of the things that we're seeing that's driving so much of the street homelessness in uh, major cities, whether it's New York or San Francisco or Seattle, is the problem is the problem of you know you have seriously mentally ill people, and you have seriously mentally ill people, and there's no public mental health infrastructure yeah. to care for them. Yeah, zero. This is also not to get too far astray, but I think this is also one of the things that drives uh, uh, mass shootings, is that pretty much everyone involved in a mass shooting in this country has a serious mental illness. It's not normal to want to go out and kill a bunch of people. And the fact that we don't have any type of um, public mental health program that if you're seriously mentally ill or homicidally mentally ill, as the case may be, um, you know, there's no, there's no infrastructure to treat that. And in a lot of respects, I think this goes kind of hand in hand with um, the whole issue of health care is, is that of which mental health care is a component. Yes. And until I think you address that, you're not really dealing with why do we have a bunch of seriously mentally ill people living on the street? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That, that seems to be the trend. Paul, you published two articles in the most recent uh, issue of Criminal Legal News magazine. One was about Maine ending civil asset forfeiture absent a conviction for a crime. Maine is now only the fourth state in America to do that. Uh, but the other article was about a documentary filmmaker. And I'll tell you, I got so angry with this article that I actually wrote an op-ed based on the article and sent it to Consortium News. It was a documentary filmmaker who had $69,000 in cash that he was going to use to finance a film. He flies into RFK, or, I'm sorry, JFK in New York goes over to Customs and Border Protection, and he says, I need to declare this cash. I have $69,000, and I'm going to use it to finance a movie. Um, he put the $69,000 into the shell of a broken Xbox. And so the CBP officer said, why is it in this broken Xbox? And he said, because I'm going to go into some really shady neighborhoods, and I don't want anybody to steal it. The DEA confiscated all $69,000. They said that his story was suspicious and they were taking the money. And so tough luck. So this guy hires an attorney 
and the attorney uh, tries to engage DEA uh, to return the money. Uh, they won't return the money. And when he files a suit to force them to return the money, the Justice Department begins investigating him. They seize his checking account, and then they accuse him of a crime called structuring, where you make deposits or withdrawals of cash for just under $10,000 because 10000 is the reporting threshold for the IRS. That's a felony. Well, he wasn't structuring. And so they said, we'll give you 90% of the money back and we'll keep 10%. And he said, no, I'm taking you to court. Finally, they gave in and they said, okay, we'll give you back your $69,000. And he said, no, I'm still suing you. So they ended up giving him the $69,000 plus $15,000 in punitive damages. Now, this is a very unusual outcome. I, I searched last night for um, horror stories surrounding civil asset forfeiture. There were too many to include in this article. Like a guy uh, is the high bidder on a car on eBay. It's 11.5. He drives, he's driving from Illinois to uh, Georgia to pick up the car. He gets pulled over in North Carolina. I think it was North Carolina, wherever it was. They said, uh, you have any drugs in the car? He said, no. Can I search your car? Yes. Never say yes. But he says, yes. They open the trunk. They see $11,150 or whatever it was in the trunk of the car. They seize it. He never got the money back. They just took it. Uh, there's a, a famous rapper who was driving from Atlanta to Los Angeles and he had $150,000 in cash that he was going to use for equipment to buy a whole you know, studio full of equipment. He gets pulled over in Oklahoma. They take the whole $150,000. This guy's never even had so much of a, as a speeding ticket. It's an outrage. So long way of saying the law that created civil asset forfeiture was actually written by Joe Biden and Strom Thurmond in 1980, when Joe Biden was first trying to make a name for himself as a law and order Democrat so he could run for president. Do you think that after all these years, Paul, there might be enough political will in this country to finally do something at the federal level about civil asset forfeiture? Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen much of any will at all in, in changing the the, the um civil forfeiture laws. I mean, part of the problem is that law enforcement agencies have literally come to rely on um, taking money from honest law-abiding people as, you know, um, literally a means to supplement their coffers. And the oversight, um, you know, the oversight or the, um, you know, the controls over this forfeited money is kind of slim to non-existent. You know, it's like when you start asking um, if you start asking uh, law enforcement agencies, like, you know, who oversees what happens with the money, who tells you what to do with it, the answer is pretty much no one's no one knows. seeing it, no, no one's telling him what to do with it. Yeah. So, um, so you know, so that's kind of, um, you know, those are kind of like the problems that they're, um, you know, that they're having. So, but as far as like anyone in Congress, I mean, I have not seen... I mean, civil forfeiture was getting some attention maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Congress made some very modest 
uh, changes to the law, but they did not go anywhere near, you know, abolishing or limiting it. And one of the things that's worth noting is about the states that have done it. So to the extent that Maine is um, doing it, it probably it remains to be seen what type of on the ground effect this is going to have, because the workaround is that the federal government, you know, the um, state law enforcement officers seize money and property, and then they say they're acting as federal law enforcement officers, so it's being forfeited under federal law, and then the feds turn around and basically give yeah. state law enforcement agencies a percentage of yeah, to them, give them a cut back. So, uh-huh. so in the real world, I mean, it's good that Maine is taking the step of doing this, but whether or not it's actually going to um, change things in the bigger scheme of things remains to be seen. One of the things I think was interesting about um, uh, Kedden's, Ariane's, uh, Etienne's, the filmmaker who had his uh, $69,000 yes. um, taken by the government, is the fact that he had the means to hire a lawyer and he was able to do that. Because at the end of the day, when you consider the fact that he had to hire a lawyer, he had to um, he had to retain counsel getting his own getting his sixty nine thousand dollars back after he paid his lawyer, he's still losing money. Yeah, he still lost money. The dollars and fees. Sure he did. Still losing money. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Donald Trump said in an interview last week, Paul, that perhaps his greatest accomplishment as president was sentencing reform. I was kind of taken aback. And then, you know, after thinking about it, I have to agree. I think it's probably probably the most substantive, most important thing. Positive accomplishment. Positive accomplishment. Jared Kushner's defense before the January 6th committee uh, a couple of weeks ago was that he wasn't involved in January 6th because he was too busy working on sentencing reform at the very, very end of the administration. Is sentencing reform dead in the Biden administration? Is there any hope for any kind of reform in the Justice Department or the Bureau of Prisons? Well, actually, under the Biden administration, we haven't seen or heard much of anything about no. sentencing reform. I mean, some of the things that uh, remain to be done, I mean, I, I think that if, you know, I think Trump can go down in American history as the greatest uh, criminal justice reformer at the federal level in American history, but that only that's only because so little. Is- yeah, nobody else has done anything at all. <laughs> exactly. So, So by that count, he goes there. But I also think that one of the things that I think Trump needs, you know, doesn't get a free pass on is his killing spree of death row prisoners. Yeah. And, um, you know, the biggest killing spree in, well, I I won't say in American history, but at least since World War II ended, um, took place on Trump's watch. And, of course, you know, it's worth noting, though, that, you know, the the laws that were in place that um, Trump was able to use to execute all these prisoners were ones that were pushed by Biden when he was in the Senate and signed by President Clinton. And of course, um, and you know, here we are with, I think we're at like around 88 or 89 prisoners are on federal death row now. And, you know, Biden has the power to commute their sentences and he hasn't even done that. Yep. Even though he claims he's against the death penalty. So now we're, after 50 years of supporting the death penalty, now claims he's against it. But right. He right. hasn't done anything about the, the dozens of prisoners um, awaiting execution now, and the, and the Justice Department continues to seek death sentences. So, you know, so I think when you start asking about, you know, sentencing reform, um, yeah, in the broader scheme of things, 
Congress, I see no will or interest in doing no. anything at their level. But even at the executive branch, the things that, that Biden as president could do includes commuting death sentences. Um, and, you know, he hasn't done that. And then, um, and that's the other thing, too, as far as when we start talking about clemency powers and commuting sentences of prisoners who aren't serving, um, you know, who aren't serving death sentences, you know, Biden has been pretty sparing in his uh, use of uh, commuting sentences. And of course, Trump was as well. And, you know, Trump used his commutation powers mostly to mm-hmm. meet the sentences of, you know, crooks and cronies and grifters. Now tell me about it. Um, yeah. So, um, so, you know, that seemed to be where Trump's priorities were on that. So it's kind of like, yeah, to the extent that Trump could say he's the big sentencing reform guy, he probably can, but not because he was so great, but because everyone else is so bad. Paul, where can people read more about your work or hear more? Sure. They can uh, check out uh, prisonlegalnews.org and also criminallegalnews.org. Between the two websites and publications, we report on uh, pretty much all aspects of uh, criminal justice uh, policy and practice, news, law court decisions, everything that's going on. And we're also working on uh, on a new podcast called Policing the Police State that's just going to focus exclusively on criminal justice issues, policing and prisons especially. Excellent. That was Paul Wright. Thanks, Paul. Paul is the uh, executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. We uh, don't really have time to take another break. John, so much has come to my attention. Uh, uh, Just in the last minute. We're going to have to talk some. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about some of it tomorrow. I did want to mention just, you know, the testimony by uh, election officials in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, Shay Moss and Ruby Friedman really was, uh, again, just really compelling, like really legitimately saying, you, you, do you know how it feels when the president of the United States calls you out as an individual and saying, you know, that they have gotten uh, death threats, yeah. uh, racist harassment that they, you know, Moss saying she just doesn't really do anything anymore. She feels confined to her home. She doesn't want to give people her business card. Crazy. She doesn't want to to say her name. You know, to have people she doesn't know know who she is, that is awful. That is an awful, terrible, uh, yeah, fate to, to have inflicted upon you by this, you know, uh, reckless and self indulgent man who happened to, you know, uh, be voted into power. You know, uh, Raffensperger, the, the Secretary of State of Georgia, made a point the other day, too, that we've been listening to these clips of the Donald Trump call. Uh, the day after the election and the clips are 15 seconds, 30 seconds. He said this call went on for 62 minutes. He said 62 minutes of the president of the United States yelling at him and telling him to go out there and find 11,780 votes. He said the the pressure it is unbearable. I can't even imagine. Yeah. The other um, fellow who was uh, pretty prominent yesterday was Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who talked about how, you know, talked about the pressure. He said he was put under by the former president uh, to to find votes in Arizona. Um, What's jumped out to me, and this guy, you know, is being heralded for being a man of principle, et cetera, et cetera. Just great, you know, great, terrific. But man... Saying that uh, it, it is an article of his faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired. Right. I mean, true, literally true, yeah. right? That is that is what members of the LDS Church believe. Wow, could we could we get away from that idea? I'm not telling this particular man he has to change his faith, though. I think 
he'd be closer to reality if he had if he did but like yeah. boy i wish we could you know for for people who for whom it is not literally an article of faith but just sort of a, an attitude they carry around based on nothing i really wish we could shake this idea that our constitution is somehow yeah. sacrosanct not to be touched not to be revisited not to be altered God, we'd be a better just country ridiculous. if we would just stop pretending that it is a sacred religious text and instead, you know, a, a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. The other big news that has happened, man, John, <laughs> the FDA is going to kick Juul's cigarettes out of the U.S. market. Yeah, how do you like that? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't like it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think Jules, whatever. I Listen, I'm not even going to express an opinion right now. I probably have a, have a bigger one tomorrow. But, like, probably more dangerous things out there. There are a lot of people who are going to be mad at this decision. The other one that I think must have slipped past us this morning is, did you see that an appeals court has upheld Arkansas's Israel boycott pledge law? No, yes, did not. That happened just today. It was the Eighth Circuit of Appeals. They reversed a decision last year by a, uh, a panel that had decided the law was on unconstitutional. It was the Arkansas Times that had sued to block the law. It requires contractors with the state to reduce their fees by 20% if they don't sign the pledge. Oh, And the editor-in-chief of the Arkansas Times, you know, wrote, had op-eds in some other large papers uh, talking about why he decided to challenge this law and how outrageous it was. Of course, Abby Martin challenged this yes. law in Georgia right. previously. Uh, multiple states with absolutely insane, unconstitutional laws on the books uh, requiring state contractors to promise not to engage in uh, boycotts of Israel. And yeah, now we have an appeals court upholding wow. one. Oh, so what that tells me is this absolutely has to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, the, it, it won't be settled at a lower court. Yeah, yeah. And then the big news. <laughs> yeah, so. The big news of the day. Tributes are pouring in. This is the headline from the Washington Post for El Chango. Uh, El Chango is a monkey. And there was a raid on a narco traffickers compound yesterday. Uh, there was a shootout between the federales and the narco guys, bodyguards. Uh, in the shootout, El Chango, the monkey, was killed. Absolutely. So unfair. Totally, a, a total totally crime. unfair. Yeah. He was wearing a bulletproof vest, a monkey-sized bulletproof vest, and he was wearing a camouflage uniform, also monkey-sized. And this is one of those little teeny tiny spider monkeys. That's awful. That's so sad. It's awful. And I actually saw on Twitter today, like, pictures of his corpse wearing his bulletproof vest oh, and his no. camo That's going to make me cry. <laughs> so nobody cares, apparently. That the narco trafficker was killed. Yeah, he, but, well, he seems like maybe he was a bad dude. Yeah, he's a bad dude. The monkey didn't do anything wrong. Absolutely not. And now a folk song has been written about the monkey. Well deserved. And it's just taking off like wildfire in Mexico. Yeah. I mean, Chango forever. I will say I, I have a great deal of sympathy and really might cry over this individual monkeys. Monkeys, generally speaking... Total jerks. Yeah. They'll steal your food. Just they'll the steal your phone. They'll steal your food and then eat it while they watch you. Uh-huh. So they know you see <laughs> them. 
eating your food. Oh yeah. my god. Well, yeah, we should note too that that el chango in Spanish means the monkey. Cool. <laughs> well, <laughs> like prince or the king. We'll leave it there. We'll probably have more to say on these uh, last headlines that we're sliding in in the last hour tomorrow. But for today, that's it. I want to say thanks to our guests as usual, to our producers and engineers, and on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>